Our reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. One of the ways uh, we respond to the reading of God's word is by affirming what we believe. And uh, this morning we have the words of the Nicene Creed. Uh, I invite you to stand. And uh, and we affirm these words uh, that have been passed on to us. If you're not in a place where this is what you believe, I invite you to, uh, to follow along and to ask us questions about it. But uh, let us uh, turn to top page 11. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please be seated. Let me pray. Our Father, we come before you. Uh, we are dependent on, uh, on you speaking to us. Uh, we ask that you uh, would send your spirit of truth to guide us. Uh, 
we, uh, we open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Our, our text uh, this morning is John 16, just uh, on uh, page 10 of your bulletin. I invite you to turn there as uh, we're continuing this series that we've been going through. Jesus' last words is, have been recorded by the Apostle John. Um, Jesus is on the way to be crucified, and he's in his last days, his last hours, and uh, he's talking to his disciples. In this passage, we find Jesus addressing a rather sorrowful group of disciples who are on the brink of falling into despondency. They're realizing the weight of what is about to happen and the weight of what Jesus is calling them to do. And over the last couple of months, uh, we've been reflecting on what it means for us, us at Emmanuel Anglican, to, to look, what it means for us to look like a community that is defined by Jesus' words here. What culture defines our community? We've looked at being a culture of faithfulness and a culture of serving, a culture of trust and fruitfulness, and last week at being a culture of resilience. And this morning, we're looking at what it means to be a culture that is led by the Holy Spirit. And what I want to present to you from a reading is that in the face of despondency, such as what the disciples here are about to face, in the face of despondency, what sustains us and gives us hope is Jesus' continued presence with us by the Holy Spirit. And the way in which the Holy Spirit does this is by conviction and guidance and glorification. So when we face despondency, what sustains us and gives us hope is Jesus' continued presence with us by the Holy Spirit. So to start, despondency. Well, what exactly is that? Great is the weight of despondency, and much courage do we need so as to stand boldly against the feeling and after gathering what is useful to let the superfluous go. Those are the words of John Chrysostom. Some of you may be familiar with the name John Chrysostom. There's actually a prayer in, uh, in the Book of Common Prayer that we use in the evening prayer service that was written by John Chrysostom. It dates back to the fourth century. It's actually one of the oldest prayers that make up our liturgy. And John Chrysostom, uh, he wrote a number of sermons that we have, and the words that I just read uh, are his commenting on John 16. Those words spoken over 1,600 years ago ring true today. Great is the weight of despondency. I think despondency is a word that describes the present climate of our culture. Although uh, Oxford Dictionaries this week uh, came out with their word of the year like they do every year, they claim that toxic is the word of the year for 2018. Although I, I think that, uh, that thinking about toxic being the defining word for the year makes me kind of despondent. So, so my vote is for despondency. But uh, 
despondency is actually a word that has popped up um, and it's been, been in the running to actually describe the last few years. Uh, I was reading a few articles this week about uh, the dominant themes in uh, music and culture going all the way back to 2017 and despondency was a word that popped up. A lot of our, our popular music, um, a lot of our commentary on TV, uh, a lot of our, our art, um, it centers around this, this idea of despondency. But what exactly is it? Well, this, to be despondent is to be in a state of being in low spirits because of losing hope or courage. Despondent is a state of being in low spirits because of losing hope or courage. And where exactly does this loss of hope or courage that we call despondency come from? Well, simply put, sorrow that is left unchecked leads to despondency. I don't know if you agree with this uh, with me or not, but, but, but hear me out. I want to take a look at, at what, what despondency looks like. I was recently out in Patterson, New Jersey uh, for a basketball clinic at a high school there. I work for a ministry called Street to Street, and uh, we run a basketball league out there uh, for at-risk youth. And while I was uh, out there, we, uh, I was out in the parking lot, we'd ordered some pizza, so I went outside with uh, our director, and he was just filling me in on, on what, what, what happens in Patterson, and he motioned across the parking lot to these basketball courts across the street, and he said, we had a girl in our league last year who was playing basketball on those courts, and she was killed in a drive-by shooting. And uh, he pointed to uh, the, the fence that we were standing right next to, and he said, you can see the bullet holes in this fence. Um, the bullet hole, it was the largest bullet hole I've ever seen. Um, it was the size of a half dollar. It wasn't, uh, wasn't your average gun that mowed down this girl. But all of these kids who uh, were playing in our tournament that we were getting to know, they, they had been a victim of violence or they'd known somebody who had been a victim of violence. And it just kind of, uh, it showed that there was just a whole lot to be sorrowful growing up there. And, and here's what sorrow turning into despondency looks like, what it looked like there. A few months ago, there was a tournament being held in the school with a lot of the kids that were, were in our program. And uh, after the first game was over, there's you know, kind of mass chaos in between as kids are shooting balls around. And one kid ran up and he just threw down this dunk on one of the, one of the, the basketball nets and the whole net came down. The supporting bracket, everything, crashed down to the floor. He was completely surrounded by it. Fortunately, somehow, he, he was uninjured. Um, but he, he destroyed the basketball that. Um, and what was telling was his reaction. Uh, he, he was angry, but, but he, and he wasn't the only one who expressed this, he was just like, man, everything in Patterson breaks. This is just what happens. That there was no hope. I think it's an image of when sorrow grows unchecked, it leads to despondency. Losing hope drags your spirits down and it crushes your soul. And I think that's how many people feel about our culture right now. I think that's how many people feel about our nation, about the political climate, about racial tensions, about health care, 
about student loans. You know, man, everything seems to be broken. Nobody can talk. Nobody can get along. There's a sense of despondency that looms over us. So now that we're all in a good mood, um, what, do, what do we do? Well, John Chrysostom, he says, great is the weight of despondency and much courage do we need so as to stand boldly against the feeling and after gathering what is useful to let the superfluous go. Chrysostom encourages us to, to gather what is useful from despondency so that we can grow in courage and we can stand against it. And so turning to our passage, we can see despondency is threatening to creep over the disciples as Jesus speaks to them. So let's see what we can glean that is useful from their experience. Here's what Jesus says in John 16, verses 4 to 6. I, Jesus, did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Here's some context for this passage. What are these things that Jesus has spoken of to them? Well, well, Jesus has dropped some hard words on the, the disciples in the passage just before our text. He's told them that he's going away. He's saying that some of you are going to be put out of your places of worship. Some of you will be killed. The world will hate you. Jesus is going to be killed. I'm sending you on a mission to this world that hates me and you. And, and these are the things that Jesus is, is telling his disciples and, and us that are really important. They're, they're, these last words is he's set his face towards the cross. And it's his last time that he's spending with the disciples. It seems like a recipe for sorrow and despondency. So how does Jesus lead his disciples through this time of great sorrow? How does Jesus prepare to sustain them and give them hope. Well, I think as we look at this, uh, we get a glimpse at that, and we get a glimpse at how hope will sustain us in despondent situations. So what is it that sustains us in the face of despondency? Well, Jesus responds to the disciples' sorrow with what I think is a shocking statement in verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. How's that possible? How's it to your advantage that Jesus goes away? How many times have you thought, you know, man, this Christian faith would be so much easier to live or so much easier to accept and believe if Jesus was still physically standing here right next to me and he could answer my questions face to face and, you know, I, we, we could touch him and see him. But here we see that, uh, that uh, not only are the disciples going to be persecuted, they're not going to be charged with being witnesses by facing and pressing into persecution, but Jesus is going away and he says, this is to your advantage. You'd think this should be something that will weigh the disciples down further and push them further away. Now they're going to be left alone. But Jesus continues, he says, For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
And here we're finding the antidote to despondency. Here we find the source of hope that sustains us through adverse circumstances. God is replacing God with God. Sounds strange, isn't it? See, the the Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus is. And if Jesus goes away, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. God's presence with us by the Holy Spirit is the answer. And we're given a clue as to why Jesus thinks this Holy Spirit replacement plan is a good idea in the word that he actually uses to identify the Holy Spirit initially here. Here the Spirit is named. He is the helper. Some translations call the, the, call the Spirit the advocate here. Both words capture, capture something of, of what Jesus is getting at, but, but they're insufficient to describe... Uh, to to, to translate the the original idea that's in the Greek language that John originally used. Uh, It's a word uh, that that actually the Apostle John only uses to describe the Holy Spirit. And and, uh, while it's hard to translate into one English word, sometimes like a phrase helps sum it up a little better. And, And I think the best way to understand the helper or the advocate is to think of him as the one who comes alongside. So Jesus sends us the one who comes alongside. So it's more than just one who helps or one who advocates on your behalf, but it's one who is present with you. One who is present with you in all that you do and in all that God calls you to do. God is replacing God with himself, with God. And here we're entering into a bit of the mystery that, that we call the Trinity, one God in three persons. Each of these persons has a specific role, but, but they work together in, in tandem as a team. Jesus is sending us the Spirit, and the Spirit is God with us. And the Spirit's presence is what gives us hope. So one more highlight about Jesus sending us the Spirit before we, we start to look at what the Spirit actually does for us. It's simply that God sends us the Spirit. Did you notice that in our passage? We don't summon him. We don't manipulate him. It's not a matter of working yourself up into the right mood. It's not about an ecstatic experience. It's actually about receiving a gift that God is is actively, freely giving. He's pouring himself out for us. Now, whether that's opening yourself up to Jesus for the first time or it's opening up Jesus into the dark recesses of your heart that you've carefully walled off from God, you know, even if you follow Jesus for years, um, or if it's about bearing witness to Jesus, about showing love and describing the beauty of Jesus to people who are resistant to him, it's always a matter of receiving a free gift that we do not earn or deserve, but that Jesus gives and it's for our advantage, it's for our benefit. Jesus graciously gives us his spirit. We're told elsewhere that in scripture that it's the spirit that actually seals us, and the spirit confirms that we belong to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is God, just as Jesus is God. And the antidote or the cure for despondency is the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us himself 
in a different way that's ideally suited for the tasks he's called us to do. God's presence with us in all that we do gives us courage and hope. Great. So, so you may be wondering, so, so what exactly does the Spirit do for us that's advantageous and hopeful? What, what does this look like? What, what, what's better than Jesus being physically present with us? Well, the Spirit brings us courage and hope by, by doing three things as he's present with us. And, and what those are, the three things are he convicts, he guides, and he glorifies. For, so for the next little, little, little bit of time I have here, I'm just going to look at these three things. And so what we have to keep in mind here is that uh, this is all in the context of Jesus telling us that we're to bear witness. We're to describe the beauty and love of Jesus to a world, to a world that's often opposed to Jesus and that message that we bear. So the first thing that the Spirit does is convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's in uh, chapter 16, verses 8 to 11. It reads, And when he comes, he, the Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, there's a lot packed into this statement. First, think of the world. The world here is uh, simply shorthand, to borrow a phrase uh, from Jim. It's shorthand for humanity in opposition to God and his purposes. God's spirit is at work in the midst of a world that is is in opposition to God and his purposes. God's spirit goes before us. We're not sent out into the world just on our own. God's not giving us some order for a hopeless mission, a suicide mission that that we're just not going to come back from and then checking out to some nice safe place and sort of watching from afar if we're going to actually carry out what, what he wants us to do. He actually goes before us by his spirit. And as the Spirit goes, he convicts. It's only God's Spirit that exposes the sin that is in all of us. It's the Spirit that turns hearts to understand our sinfulness. And so the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin because it takes an act of God to open our eyes to see who Jesus really is and to see our great need for him. Does this take some of the pressure off of when you think about the places God has called you to work in and to go to school in and to live in. You know, when you think about some of the people we're called to love and live life with, God's spirit is there with us in the midst of it. God's spirit is in the midst of all of our relationships. Now, the spirit goes before us and convicts the world of sin, but he's not done with with just that. The spirit also convicts the world concerning righteousness. Now, now, what's all this about? Well, we're we're told in the passage that it's because Jesus is going to the Father. And and this is basically a way of saying that the Spirit goes, as the Spirit goes before us, he lifts up who Jesus is and affirms all of Jesus' claims of equality with God the Father, 
In a sense, he vindicates Jesus in the face of all who oppose him. Jesus is the righteous one, and he's going up to the Father. He actually is who he claims he is. This is a major reason why there's religious leaders that are are constantly looking to kill Jesus. They're so bent on seeing him executed that right now in this passage, you know, he's, he's facing the cross. He claimed to be God over and over again. And Jesus says that it's the spirit actually allows people to see Jesus for who he really is. So the spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness. And finally, the spirit convicts the world concerning judgment. And we're told here there's a specific judgment in mind. Scripture opens our eyes to a spiritual reality. And here we're shown that the ruler of the world is judged. This is a reference to to Satan. This is a reference to the forces of evil that lie behind much of the injustice and suffering and hurt and pain in the world. And we're told that Satan has been condemned. He has been defeated by Jesus. We know how the story ends. Jesus wins. And, And we face a lot in this world, and it's so easy to grow weary to grow despondent at the pain and the great need in us and around us. But the Spirit is going before us. The Spirit is convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. And we're just kind of actually along for the ride in a way. The Spirit's doing all of the heavy lifting. Our job is to witness to these realities. It's to witness to these realities of, of sin, of Jesus' righteousness, of his defeat of the enemy. And the Spirit applies that to people's hearts. It's it's to our advantage because God's Spirit is the one who actually changes hearts. It's not up to us to change hearts, but it's up to us to witness to who Jesus is, to constantly point people to the reality that Jesus has defeated death and sin. So, the Spirit convicts the world. That's the first thing. The second thing that the Spirit does is that he guides us. The focus on the Spirit's work so far has been very outward. It's been relating to the world around us. Now, suddenly, um, the Spirit is turning in towards us, and, and the Spirit speaks to us as we go down to verses 12 and 13. Here it says, I, that's Jesus speaking, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus tells the disciples that there's so much more to be said, but it's just too much at the moment. There, but yet there's no need to worry about it, because he's still going to continue to guide them. Again, the emphasis is on we're not left on our own. Jesus will continue to guide by his spirit of truth. God will remain with the disciples. God will remain with us. And if we we jump ahead, actually, in John's gospel to the end of it, to chapter 20, uh, after Jesus has been crucified and he's been buried, we find that the disciples end up in a bit of a mess. Jesus has been crucified. One of their own, Judas, has 
betrayed Jesus to the authorities and in grief over his actions, he committed suicide. Peter has spectacularly denied Jesus three times despite vowing that there's no way that he's ever going to deny Jesus. And the rest of the disciples, we find they've, they've basically returned home. They, they, they've gone back to, to whatever they, they've known before. And I don't know, they're, they're unsure of what to do. And, and in, in John chapter 20, we find a fearful group of disciples locked in a room. And having heard that Jesus has been raised from the dead, um, they're, they're, they're kind of locked down. And they're, they're like, what, what, what's going on? Jesus appears to them. He, he, he's present to them. And what he does is he commissions them. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus actually assures them of his presence when they are at their most vulnerable. When they're disillusioned, when they're fearful. And he assures them of his presence by giving them his presence, by, by breathing on them the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do? What's the Spirit supposed to do when he's with them? Well, back in our, our passage in John 16, we're told that the Spirit guides us into all truth. And he does this by listening to Jesus and declaring what is to come. There's this dynamic conversation going on within God that serves to remind us of all the things that Jesus has been trying to teach. The disciples are notorious for, for not quite getting what Jesus is saying. Um, I feel I'm in good company that way. Uh, there's so much that I don't get that Jesus is trying to tell me. Um, they, you know, you kind of get what Jesus is talking about, and then, then you do something that they're just going to realize, like, oh, I didn't get it. Um, but the disciples, they're, they're just... They're not abandoned to work out the rest of the story on their own. God continues by his spirit to bring understanding and direction to his people, especially when facing difficult circumstances, reminding them of the words of Jesus while he was with them. He reminds us of the words that we have in scripture. God still speaks to us by his spirit. There's a deep personal connection that we have to God made possible by his spirit. And, and we get to be in on what God is doing. The spirit guides us into all truth. So third and the final thing that the spirit does is he glorifies Jesus. So he convicts the world. He guides us. And the last thing is he glorifies Jesus. Verses 14 and 15 says... He, that's the Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, what I said, therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. As the Spirit guides us, he lifts up Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. He puts a spotlight on him. It's a fancy way of saying that Jesus, that the Spirit draws us to praise Jesus and worship Jesus and recognize who Jesus is. This Holy Spirit isn't some autonomous force that just gives us knowledge and insight or, or anything. The Holy Spirit is always pointing us to Jesus, revealing Jesus to us, drawing us to our knees to worship Jesus. 
And when our focus is being drawn toward Jesus and we realize that his presence is with us, that his love is poured out to us, we find our source of hope. It's in a God who is near to us. It's in a God who comes to us as a human being who loves us when we are at our worst, a God who relentlessly pursues us, a God who is with us in the worst circumstances. He's a God who faces and defeats death so that we can live with him. Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father. We, we, we said that in the creed. Um, he rules over all of creation. This is the one who we have access to by the Holy Spirit. Spirit points us to Jesus who ushers us into the presence of God the Father. And when we practice this turning towards the face of God, we're guarded from falling into despondency because we see that God is not far from us. He's present and he's active and he's deeply invested in each one of us, no matter what we face or we endure. So it's in the face of despondency, what sustains us and gives us hope is Jesus' continued presence with us by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. He convicts the world as we go out, he guides us, and he continually points us towards Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmanuel Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jim Saladin, the minister here. At Emmanuel, we seek to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City and ultimately the world. We rely on the generous giving of people like you. Consider supporting our ministries at www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.